This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington, and this week on Face the Nation, it's been a disturbing 4th of July weekend as the coronavirus wildfire continues to spread and the president's fiery rhetoric divides rather than unites America. The nation's capital was ground zero for an eerie and edgy 4th of July, with images of a birthday celebration featuring Americans exercising their First Amendment rights. There are shocking spikes in new cases, a 90% increase in the last two weeks, particularly in the South and some parts of the West. From coast to coast, there's a divide between Americans assuming personal responsibility in their behavior and a refusal of some to accept the reality of the coronavirus. And we'll likely have a therapeutic and or vaccine solution long before the end of the year. We've learned a lot. We've learned how to put out the flame. But scientists and medical experts see it differently. We're going in the wrong direction. I'm very concerned because it could get very bad. Dr. Anthony Fauci, the country's top virus expert, predicted we could see 100,000 new cases a day, double what we're seeing today. What we've seen over the last several days is a spike in cases that are well beyond the worst spikes that we've seen. That is not good news. We've got to get that under control or we risk an even greater outbreak in the United States. With protests and record high joblessness across the nation, President Trump chose Mount Rushmore Friday to launch a campaign against what he calls far-left fascism. Angry mobs are trying to tear down statues of our founders, deface our most sacred memorials, and unleash a wave of violent crime in our cities. Another attack came on the 4th of July. We are now in the process of defeating the radical left, the Marxists, the anarchists, the agitators, the looters, and people who, in many instances, have absolutely no clue what they are doing. We'll hear from the mayors of two COVID hotspots, Houston's Sylvester Turner and Miami-Dade County Mayor Carlos Jimenez, plus former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. We'll talk with former National Security Advisor John Bolton. Plus, we'll have analysis on the week's economic news with Mark Zandi of Moody's Analytics and also take a look at travel trends in the COVID era. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. And welcome to Face the Nation. It may be the most sobering morning after the 4th of July in America's history as we wake up to the fourth day in a row of more than 50,000 new reported cases of COVID-19. They're on the rise now in 40 of 50 states. We are committed to bringing you the facts about the virus and the most knowledgeable guests that we can. 
We think it's important for our viewers to hear from Dr. Anthony Fauci and the Centers for Disease Control. But we have not been able to get our request for Dr. Fauci approved by the Trump administration in the last three months. And the CDC, not at all. We will continue our efforts. Our coverage begins this morning with CBS News national correspondent Mark Strassman in Atlanta. Washington, D.C.'s celebration of the 4th last night masked a feeling far from festive. On the National Mall, police and protesters were in no mood to party. D.C.'s mayor had urged people to stay safe and stay home. And at the White House, masks were available. But few people wore them, as President Trump bragged about his administration's response to the pandemic. We have tested almost 40 million people. By so doing, we show cases, 99% of which are totally harmless. Tell that to health officials across the country. They saw a parade of non-social distancers this weekend. Like this pool party in Michigan, and another in Missouri's Lake of the Ozarks area. A rolling wave of COVID already has hit America's sunbelt. States with the biggest spike over the last week, Georgia, Louisiana, Nevada, Arizona, South Carolina, and Florida. This holiday weekend, South Florida beaches are closed. On Saturday, the state posted two alarming COVID records, almost 11,500 new cases in a single day, and its testing positivity rate hit almost 18%. Roughly one in five newly sick Americans is a Floridian. Governor Ron DeSantis. I don't think anyone predicted a sunbelt resurgence in mid-June. Not exactly true. Many health experts predicted spikes in states that aggressively stayed open for business, like Florida, like Texas. This state's averaging 6,500 new cases a day, three times its April average. A mask mandate now covers most of the state. In California, some beaches were closed, others crowded. The virus has burst again in California, the first day to shut down back in March. Roughly 6,300 new cases a day. Avoid crowds uh, and avoid going to large parades outside of your household. But for these tailgaters in Folsom, California, COVID fatigue mixed with patriotic pride. The cars were parked six feet apart. In Arizona, free COVID testing drew hundreds of people. A sign of the worry here, some cars waited eight hours before organizers ran out of supplies. Balancing vital signs and dollar signs remains tricky. Expect fuller flights on American Airlines. It's selling middle seats again. And Major League Baseball's abbreviated season is less than three weeks away. But America's national pastime already has America's virus. At least 38 players and staff have tested positive. The good news? COVID mortality rates are dropping. Still, by the end of this month, some health experts predict as many as 160,000 Americans will have died from the virus. People heard the call to have a low-key holiday weekend. But did they listen? Margaret? Mark Strassman in Atlanta, thank you. We want to go now to one of the nation's hot spots. That's Houston, Texas. Mayor Sylvester Turner joins us from his home this morning. Good morning to you, Mr. Mayor. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, the president said 99% of COVID-19 cases are totally harmless. Is that the case in Houston? No, that's not the case. I would tell you a month ago, one in 10 people were testing positive. Today, it's one in four. Uh, the number of people who are getting sick and going to the hospitals has exponentially increased. The number of people in our ICU beds has exponentially increased. In fact, if we don't get our hands around this virus quickly uh, in about two weeks, our hospital system could be in serious, serious trouble. Overwhelmed. Is that what you mean by serious trouble? That's what I mean, overwhelmed. Right now we have we have bed capacity. But let me just tell you, I want to highlight the, the major problem is staffing. We can always provide additional beds, uh, but we need the people, the nurses, and everybody else, the medical professionals, uh, to staff those beds. That's the critical point right now. Who is getting sick? Is this concentrated in any one community? Is there any lesson to be learned here? Look, this virus is an equal opportunity abuser. It will inflict anyone who comes in close proximity with it. Now, it's having a disproportional impact 
on people of color and right now it's especially within the Hispanic community. But we're having young people being impacted as well. Uh, just the other day, I announced uh, a young woman in her 20s with no underlying medical conditions that died as a result of COVID. So it's anyone from their 20s into their 90s are being impacted. If you come together in close proximity, you will fuel this virus. And now one in four people are testing positive for this virus. It's a serious issue and we need to control it. What do you trace this spike back to? Because I know your police chief, uh, Acevedo, said he believes there's a high probability that many of the officers who were policing those protests in the past few weeks um, trace it back to that. Others have traced it back to reopening of restaurants. I mean, can you concentrate this? And what does the contact tracing tell you? Well, at the end of April, the beginning of May, our numbers were relatively low in terms of people getting infected and people dying. We were, our numbers were quite good. What we did see is we started to reopen. And I said then we were reopening too quickly, too fast. In the month of May, if you look at the second week in May uh, going forward, the numbers started to increase. I was never reporting more than, let's say, 200, 250 cases a day in terms of people testing positive. And then towards the end of May into June, those numbers started increasing exponentially. Around mid-June, I started reporting six, seven, eight, nine hundred a day. And so from the beginning, when we started opening too quickly, and when you layer that on top of everything else, all the other activities that were taking place, uh, and people starting to re-socialize, then you started to refuel the virus, and that's when the numbers started to increase. With testing, we've seen pictures of long lines in Houston. Do you need the state, do you need the federal government to surge capacity to you? Why isn't that happening already? Well, let me just tell you, this is all hands. We need everybody from the federal level, state level, and local level. The demand for testing in this state, in this city, has increased quite a bit. But we, and we're trying to ramp up, but the, the demand exceeds the capacity. At the two major testing sites that we have, that's a, uh, that we're, we have partnered with FEMA, uh, we can test up to about 650 per day at each one of those sites. We are reaching capacity at about noon. Uh, we, are, we have opened up some additional testing sites in many of what I call our at-risk, vulnerable communities, uh, but there's a tremendous demand. Uh, and then there's a wait time for that testing and to get the results back. So we are increasing the testing but we are also finding, and what's most disturbing, is that the positivity rate has increased. So a month ago, one in 10 tested positive. Today, we're looking at almost like one in four. Uh, Mr. Mayor, I, I want to also ask you about something the president said yesterday in his 4th of July okay. speech. I know you, in your city, um, have been supportive of removing Confederate monuments uh, because of the moment we are in. He gave extensive remarks to the president yesterday uh, talking about a fight that he says he's taking on with the, quote, radical left, Marxist anarchists, agitators, and the looters, and the angry mob trying to tear down our statues and erase our history. I wonder how those words landed with you and your decisions. Well, well let me just say I don't fit into any one of those categories. Uh, these statues, Confederate statues, and in Houston, we have taken them down and they've been taken down very peacefully with the support, I would say, probably of most Houstonians in this city. These statues should never have been put there to glorify that history. It is There's a place for them, primarily in a museum or someplace else, but not in our city parks and public spaces. The history, and I'm an African-American mayor. Um, I'm a nonpartisan mayor. But I can't, but I was an African-American before I became mayor. I'll be an African-American after I'm mayor. And the history of slavery and people fighting against the Union, that history uh, cannot be erased. And the fact is that those monuments were placed, for example, in Houston 80 to 100 years ago to glorify the bad things that were done to other people like those of, those of my ancestors. It has been past due time for those statues to come down we did it in a respectful way. We're not trying to uh, erase history, but we are trying to take the power of placing these statues in public spaces away mm -hmm. and to place them where they can be told, where the history can be told and placed in its context. 
the toxicity yeah. that is being spread now in our city and in, in our country has to come to an end. Mr. Mayor, thank you for your time. Good luck with your fight. Thank you. Uh, we, we want to turn now to another mayor in another hot spot in South Florida. The mayor of Miami-Dade County is Carlos Jimenez, and he joins us from Miami this morning. Thank you for joining us, Mr. Mayor. It's a pleasure. You put in some pretty stringent restrictions in the past few days on this holiday weekend. You put in place a curfew. You've stopped alcohol from being served at hotels after 8 p.m., mask wearing. Are your residents now taking this threat seriously? Well, I think they are, but I think the, the, my residents also kind of let their guard down uh, around uh, late May, early June. And also some of the protests that we had here, I think, contributed to it. So we saw a rapid rise in young people getting, um, being positive to COVID-19 around mid-June. And, um, and I think that that had a lot to do with uh, probably socializing, uh, uh, young kids going to parties, maybe graduation parties at homes. Because it's, uh, it's been pretty locked down here for, for some time. Uh, we, uh, we have a strict uh, mask order inside. When you're inside uh, since uh, April 19th, uh, you're supposed to wear a mask. You're supposed to wear a mask when you're outside mm -hmm. unless you can maintain social distancing. We change that now to wearing a mask all the time. We, uh, we shut down the, the beaches uh, this weekend. We uh, restricted alcohol sales. Uh, we've also closed, again, some of the... Uh, places where people can congregate, like movie theaters and bowling alleys and casinos and all that, uh, because uh, we have seen a sharp rise in the positivity rate, just like they have in Houston. So you do trace it to the protest, because we just heard uh, the mayor of Houston say that was not it. It was the restaurants, the businesses, and people gathering in those kind of no, situations. I think, no, I think it's all the above. I think, the, obviously, the protests had a lot to do with it. We had, you know, thousands of young people together uh, outside, a lot of them not wearing masks. And we know that when, you're, when you do that and you are talking and you are chanting, et cetera, that really spreads the virus. So okay. absolutely, the, uh, the protests had something to do with it. Uh, but also our people, our residents, you know, did not, I think they let their guard down and started to socialize. And again, that also had to do with it. So it's all the above. I'm not saying it's just that. Right. But it was a contributing factor. Uh, give us a sense of who is getting ill um, and how ill they are getting. Because uh, as I asked the other mayor, uh, the president said yesterday, 99% of these cases are totally harmless. What's happening in Miami? Well, there's a difference between what is the real, what's the official number and what's the real number. We ran a, a study down here in Miami-Dade a couple of months ago that said over 200,000 people had already had the virus or had the virus at the time. So our official number is maybe 40,000 uh, have officially had. What concerns me is the positivity rate. We had it down to about 8% of the people getting tested were showing up positive. Now they're over 20% are showing up positive. That's the problem uh, for us. And so we uh, but, have and seen how ill are they getting increase. with hospitalizations and, and the, the degree of lethality to this? Because last week you were on uh, Fox News and you said the good news here is that it's not as lethal as people think it is. That seems yeah. in contradiction to your very stringent guidelines now. No, because, look, we just have more people that are being positive. And so the more you have at the end, you're going to have more people, you know, pass away, unfortunately, because it's just a question of, of numbers. And so we do have a lot of young people that have gotten, uh, that have gotten positive uh, results. We have had seen an increase in the number of, of hospitalizations. We have seen an increase in the number of ICUs and also an increase in the number of ventilations, simply because we have a, a more of our people are actually testing positive, which indicates more of the people of Miami-Dade County are coming up with COVID-19. And so when you have more, you obviously will have more hospitalizations, more ICUs, more, more respirators, right. and unfortunately, you'll have more fatalities. So you would agree that going on a respirator or being hospitalized means that the virus is not harmless, as the president characterized No, the virus it. is not. No, no. Thank the, you. the virus is not harmless. No, absolutely so not. That is, I mean, that's right. why if it were if it were harmless, I wouldn't be taking the steps that we're taking here in Miami-Dade. Exactly. Uh, I want to yeah. ask you where the concentrations of clusters are. Well, it's uh, initially it started out in the middle of the city and uh, and also down south. And so we have our our farm workers down south um, and we had a big concentration down there. And then in the middle of the city, uh, in some of the poor neighborhoods, we had concentrations. But now it's spreading. 
and it's spreading uh, throughout the, the county. And so we have uh, what we call surge teams or, or people with over 100 people. We go out, we give masks, we give hand sanitizers, information, and drive home the point that we have to wear our masks when they're inside. We have to wear our masks outside. We have to wash our hands. We need to keep away from each other. And if we do that, if we act responsibly, then we can tap down the positivity rate, get it down below 10%, wouldn't it help you which is if, what we need it to be. Wouldn't it help you if both your state's governor and the president also issued that call? Well, look, the, the, the governor and I uh, talk just about every day, and he allows us down here in Miami-Dade to do things a little differently because the virus has actually uh, been more impactful here in Miami-Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach than other parts of the state. And so it's a big state. And uh, there, are, there are big differences between what's happening up in the north part of the state right. and what's happening here. Yeah, that's in, why I was asking Miami you about Day. your portion uh, of yeah. the state. We wish right. you very good luck in getting this under control. Um, we want to leave Thank it you, there and get, <laughs> we want to get some perspective on what we just learned uh, with former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He's standing by. Stay with us. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. We go now to Westport, Connecticut, and former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. Good morning to you. Good morning. Uh, the infection rate spiked this week. Dr. Fauci referred to it as beyond the worst spikes that we have seen. Where are we headed as a country right now? Well, I think right now we're where we were when New York City was having its peak epidemic. If you look back, um, when New York City peaked, we had about 34,000 cases a day. At the time, we were probably diagnosing 1 in 20 infections. So that meant we were having 700,000 new infections a day. Right now, we're going to have about 60,000 infections a day this week. Maybe we'll reach 75,000 or get close to it. We're probably diagnosing 1 in 12 infections. CDC said 1 in 10 a few weeks ago. It's probably 1 in 12 now because we're falling behind. That means we have about 700,000 infections a day nationally. So we're right back where we were at the peak of the epidemic during the New York outbreak. The difference now is that we really had one epicenter of spread when New York was going through its hardship. Now we really have four major epicenters of spread, Los Angeles, cities in Texas, cities in Florida, um, in Arizona. And Florida looks to be in the worst shape, and Georgia's heating up as well, and that's concerning. The president has tweeted uh, yesterday that the media is focused too much on these growing number of cases, and he's making the point that deaths and the all-important mortality rate is going down, and we're not hearing enough about that. How do you understand what is happening with deaths and mortality? Well, we need to separate the number of deaths going down from the actual case fatality rate. How lethal is this? The case fatality rate is going down, although we're not able to measure it right now because we're able to save more people who are hospitalized and get critically ill because of advances in care. The number of deaths has gone down because the number of infections went down for a period of time, and more of the new infections right now are in younger people, and we're protecting more vulnerable populations like people in nursing homes. But the total number of deaths is going to start going up again um, as the number of hospitalizations starts to spike again. So we're going to see deaths creep up, and I wouldn't be surprised in the next two weeks to see deaths go over 1,000. That doesn't mean the case fatality rate, the actual death rate, isn't declining. But when you have more infections, even if the death rate's declining, you're going to get more deaths tragically. So if we cut the death rate in half, if we make this half less lethal than it was, but we double the number of infections, we're going to get more deaths. And I think we're going to start to see that. So we shouldn't just focus on the crude mortality rate, the number of deaths, to tell the story of what's happening medically. Medically, we are improving, but we just have so much infection around this country, we're going to see, unfortunately, a lot of lethality. So when the president said of the increase in cases that 99% of which are totally harmless, is he confused? Well, I'm not really sure what he's referring to. He might be referring to the number of people who get hospitalized based on the number of people who get infected, which is probably less than 5% when you count all the asymptomatic infection and infection in young people that might not be, be getting diagnosed. Um, but certainly more than 1% uh, of people 
get serious illness from this. Uh, about 60% of people who get infected become symptomatic. About 10 to 15% of them will develop some form of COVID pneumonia. And somewhere around 2 to 5% might get hospitalized, depending on what the age mix is of, of the people who are getting infected. Mm-hmm. So this is still a pretty bad virus. What we're able to do is when people do get hospitalized and get into the ICU, we're able to save more lives with treatments like remdesivir, with steroids now, which has a big impact on mortality, and innovations in care like using blood thinners on patients and not intubating yeah. them as aggressively. So that is going to cut the death rate. I want to talk to you about remdesivir and about some of those treatments. Um, so if you can stay with us, uh, we will come back and continue our conversation with Dr. Gottlieb in the next half hour. Many Americans are trying to figure out where they can go this summer for vacations. In our next half hour, we'll talk to the CEO of TripAdvisor. He's got some interesting findings about where they're looking. We'll be right back with more from Dr. Gottlieb and then former National Security Advisor John Bolton. He's here to talk about his new book, The Room Where It Happened. Stay with us. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. Welcome back to Face the Nation. We continue our conversation now with former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. Um, I want to pick up on this idea that we left off on, which is that treatments, there is hope on that front. Specifically on remdesivir, that drug that's made by Gilead, we've talked about it in Face the Nation before, it shortens recovery time. It was a sign of hope, but now we are hearing that there may not be enough of it. Uh, Does the administration need to be doing more? I know HHS said that they're purchasing 500,000 doses of it, but is that going to meet the need? Well, look, we need to accept the fact that we're in the second wave right now. Um, Two months ago, there were about 10 states where the reproduction number was above 10, meaning they had expanding epidemics. Now there's 40. So we're in that second wave. Um, And there's not a clear line of sight on how we're going to get this under control. So it makes us more and more dependent on technology. And there's only a handful of technologies that may be available between now and the end of the year. Remdesivir is one of them. We have enough of the drug if the epidemic stays at its current level And we continue to use remdesivir as it's approved for patients who are more sick and hospitalized. But if the epidemic worsens and we want to extend use of the drug to patients who aren't as ill but have pre-existing conditions that that predict that they may become very sick, we don't have enough drug for that. And that's what we would have wanted. Um, We would have had to set the groundwork for that months ago, and we didn't do that I think right now we need to be planning for other drugs that may become available this fall, like the therapeutic antibodies, and make sure we invest right now in manufacturing capacity and have a coordinated strategy on that so we can have them if those drugs do become available. When you say we, who do you mean? Is that something that needs to come from the White House? Is that something Congress has to mandate? Are we looking for corporations to decide to do this themselves? Well, the corporations are doing it themselves. There's a lot of collaboration going on, discussion between pharmaceutical companies about trying to free up capacity to increase the manufacturing of these drugs. I think we need a more coordinated national strategy around this. There's things that government can do to either pay companies not to produce certain drugs or try to consolidate manufacturing for products we don't really need right now or maybe boost manufacturing in the short term and freeze some of those drugs, put them on hold so you can free up the domestic manufacturing capacity. We don't have a lot of excess domestic manufacturing capacity for these drugs, so we need a strategy to try to free that up. And it doesn't mean the government steps in and uses the Defense Production Act to take over facilities. There's ways that they can work with companies to try to coordinate this. That's what should be happening, particularly around the antibodies. We missed the window to do it on remdesivir. Because that drug has a long manufacturing cycle, we're unlikely to be able to ramp up supply between now and the end of the year. Um, And that's when we would have needed it because we face a hard fall. We're going to take all this infection into the fall and winter. It's not clear that it's going to get better. We're going to have epidemics that that come and go across the nation in different cities. They'll light up at different times. But we're not going to really be able to crush this virus at this point because there's just so much infection around. We really don't seem to have the political will to do it. 
You told us in April on this program uh, that doctors should not be using hydroxychloroquine to treat COVID-19. Do you stand by that recommendation now? Well, that's certainly clear. There's been definitive studies that show that it doesn't provide benefit to hospitalized patients, and it doesn't work as a prophylaxis. So if you take it when you're exposed, it doesn't prevent infection. There's still some studies underway looking at whether it could be helpful in mildly symptomatic patients on an outpatient basis. But most of the evidence that's been turned over to answer that question isn't suggested that there's a benefit. So I don't think anyone should be using it right now, pending results of another study that might demonstrate that there is, in fact, a benefit. Because the margin of all the data we've gotten from all the credible studies really shows no benefit, and in some cases, increased risk. All right. Dr. Gottlieb, always good talking to you. Thanks a lot. We want to go now to former National Security Advisor John Bolton. He has a new book out. You might have heard about it, about his time in the administration called The Room Where It Happened. Good morning to you, Ambassador. Good morning. Glad to be with you. Glad to have you back on Face the Nation. Uh, I want to talk about a number of topics with you, but you in your book lay out a number of incidents in which you came to the point of potentially resigning, but you stuck with it for about 17 months. The president, however, continues to refer back to one specific incident on this program with you as the reason for your relationship going south. It was a comment about North Korea. I want to play it. Is it a requirement that Kim Jong-un agree to give away those weapons before uh, you give any kind of concession? I think that's right. I think we're looking at the Libya model of 2003-2004. The president told Fox News that was one of the dumbest things I've ever seen on television. Was it that moment that ruined your relationship? Well, well, who knows? I guess uh, the president's discontent with me ought, ought to have him asking uh, who hired that guy to begin with. Maybe he's the one who needs to be fired. Uh, you know, I don't think I could be clearer in talking about the Libya model of 2003-2004. We had a clear strategic decision uh, from Muammar Gaddafi to give up Libya's nuclear weapons program. We have never gotten that uh, from North Korea. So the fact that seven or eight years later, in the midst of the Arab Spring, uh, Gaddafi was overthrown, right. nobody predicted in 2003, 2004. I'll stand by my comment. One day the president will learn a little history and he'd be better off for it. Does the president and his thinking get more shaped by television or government advisors? Well, I think it's a combination of uh, television and uh, listening to people outside the government that that he trusts for one reason or another. Uh, I think that if you could clock the amount of time he spent uh, actually in the Oval Office versus the amount of time he spends in the little dining room off the Oval Office with the cable news networks of one form or another on, it would be a very interesting statistic. I want to move on to uh, some issues on the national security front. You're not in government anymore, but I know you watch Iran closely. There have been at least three mysterious explosions uh, in the past few days, specifically one at the Natanz nuclear site. Does this look like U.S. or Israeli sabotage to you? Well, uh, nobody's claiming credit for it except a dissident group inside Iran. The Iranian government itself Uh, is trying not to comment on it. The Israeli government is not commenting. It's not clear whether this is the precursor of a larger attack or not. But if somebody is beginning the process of taking down Iran's nuclear and ballistic missile program, uh, I say more power to them. And if they have some spare time, maybe they could try the same on North Korea. (laughs) Well, uh, we'll see what we hear from government officials. The Israelis are not confirming, as, as you mentioned there, on Afghanistan and Russia. Um, as you know, the current national security advisor, Robert O'Brien, uh, has acknowledged that the U.S. did indeed have intelligence that Russia was paying bounties for American dead. Um, but he said that information was withheld by a CIA officer from the president, even though it was in the brief. Were you ever aware of bounties when you were a national security advisor? Well, I'm not going to comment on what I knew or didn't know out of the intelligence, but I do think it's important for people to understand intelligence doesn't come in only two 
uh, qualities, the fully verified intelligence and then the unverified intelligence. Well, I want to narrow in on this because this morning, I just want to make sure you know, this morning, Susan Rice, the national security advisor to President Obama, went on television on another network and said the information came to light in 2019 when you were in the job and she believes you would have told the president. Is she wrong? Did you know about that? Well, I, I've said in countless other uh, interviews, I'm not going to disclose classified information. I've got the uh, struggle with the president trying to repress my book on that score already. I, I will say this. All intelligence is distributed along a spectrum of uncertainty. Uh, and this intelligence in 2020, uh, by the administration's own admission, was deemed credible enough to give to our allies. So the notion that you only give the really completely 100 percent verified intelligence to the president would mean you give him almost nothing. And that's just not the way the system works. And it's certainly not a decision made only by the uh, briefer who briefs the president twice a week. That's a decision that at least when I was there would have been made by uh, the director of national intelligence, the director of the CIA, myself, and the briefer together. Right. Well, I mean, this information that Russia was providing weapons and money to the Taliban was made public in 2018 by the com then commander of U.S. forces in Afghanistan. Um, so you may have known about it when you were in that job. I'm wondering if you are, in your remarks today, sort of politely saying that the current national security advisor failed in his job. Look, I'm, I'm not going to I don't want to make this a matter of personalities. And by the way, what was made public in 2018 was Russian assistance to the Taliban. And that's been known for some time. That alone is troubling. What, what is particularly troubling, if true, uh, is this latest information that they were killing. They were providing uh, compensation for killing Americans. And that is the kind of thing that uh, that you go to the president on and say, look, Mr. President, heads up. Uh, we may not know everything on this. But a nuclear power is reportedly providing bounties to kill Americans. That's the kind of thing you need to have in the president's uh, view so that he can think about it uh, uh, as he develops, well, at least as normal presidents develop strategy to handle Russia, to handle uh, uh, yeah. Afghanistan. Uh, before I let you go, I want to ask you, you uh, in your book, were very critical of some of your fellow cabinet members. Um, Nikki Haley you really unloaded on her. You called her untethered, a free electron. You mentioned her going on this program and saying things she shouldn't have said about Russia. You seem to have a pretty low regard for someone who's viewed as having a bright future within the Republican Party. Why did you do that? Well, she wrote about this, uh, the, the uh, conversation on your show and her book, and it was inaccurate. And uh, I just felt that it was important to get the record straight. I really wrote this book uh, in large measure for history. Other people will write their books and scholars in the future will, uh, will, will sort it out. I, I wrote as best I could recollect what I saw. Uh, and I thought that was important yeah. when somebody actually gets the title of their book out of the incident and the facts are wrong. Ambassador Bolton, always interesting to talk to you. We will leave it there and we'll be right back with a look at some good economic news this week. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. The U.S. added 4.8 million jobs in June, but that data was compiled before the coronavirus spikes that started mid-month. Mark Zandi, chief economist at Moody's Analytics, joins us now from Philadelphia this morning. Good morning to you, Mark. Good morning, Margaret. Uh, you had already predicted this would be the shortest but arguably most severe recession in history. What did we learn from the data we got this week? Well, it was good, about as good as you could expect. Uh, almost 5 million jobs uh, were created during the month. That's on top of 2.7 million in the month of May. So we've gotten about a third of the jobs back that we lost in, in March and April. Unemployment declined. Uh, properly measured, it's about 12 percent 
Hard to imagine that that's a good number, but it is a good number compared to 20%, which we got in, in April. That was the peak. But here, here's the thing, Margaret, the unfortunate thing. Uh, you know, the, the unexpected better economic news is the result of the very rapid increase in business reopenings. Too fast, uh, because now the virus is reintensifying and the pandemic is raging in a lot of key states across the country. They're pulling back, and that's not in the data yet. That's coming down the road. So I fear that the best economic news was in June, and as we look to July and going forward, the job statistics are going to look uh, meaningfully, uh, meaningfully worse. Uh, the, the pandemic is a real issue now. And these are these states that are seeing these spikes are important to the U.S. economy, very large economies, Texas, uh, California, Florida. How much do you expect to see consumers pull back? They are. They're big. I mean, if you add up California, Texas, Florida, let's throw in Arizona, you're, you know, you're now talking about uh, over a fifth of the economy, probably closer to a third of the economy right there. Uh, and I, I do expect uh, that we're going to see pullbacks by businesses in those states. And here's the, here's the thing. It's not just businesses that are directly impacted. It's not just restaurants and retailers. I think all businesses are going to be nervous about the uncertainty that this all creates. And so they're going to become even more cautious in, in hiring back uh, workers. And then, of course, You've got uh, consumers, you right. and I, uh, you know, uh, we, we, were, we already had one hand on the bunker. I can't imagine that many of us aren't going to go right back into the bunker as a result of all this and wait this out. So this is very disconcerting. And if Dr. Fauci is right and we we're headed towards 100,000 per day, I think the prospects of going back into recession are pretty high. Well, we know, certainly at the White House and on Capitol Hill, they're going to have to take a look at what kind of emergency aid uh, will need to be provided in light of some of this changing information that we're receiving. In your view, do you think Congress needs to provide some kind of help uh, to American families? 80 million Americans have children under the age of 18. They can't necessarily send them back to school in the summer, maybe not in the fall. Child care is also in question. How important is it to address that specific challenge? It's absolutely critical. Uh, you know, if Congress and the administration don't get it together in the next few weeks before Congress goes away on its August recess, uh, I, I fear we're going back into recession because uh, it, the economy needs a lot of help. And you, you point out there's a lot of, e even though unemployment's back down, if you add up folks that are unemployed, people who are, have got their hours cut, they're still working, but they got their hours cut. And then consider those folks that are still working, haven't gotten their hours cut, but got their pay cut. You're talking about a third of all American workers that are still struggling here. And if they don't get some additional help on, you know, and as you know, the, the unemployment insurance uh, uh, expansion that was part of right. the original help to the economy is, is, is going away in two to three weeks. So if, if Congress and administration don't figure out how to provide more help to these folks, uh, they're, they're going to have absolutely no choice but to stop paying bills, cut spending, and the economy is really going to struggle. Here's the other thing. State and local governments are hemorrhaging red ink, right? right. So every, uh, every state and local government across the country, it doesn't matter whether you're in a Republican state or a Democratic state, you're hemorrhaging red ink and they're slashing payrolls. And these are middle-income um, uh, jobs. Uh, they're teachers, they're fire, they're police, they're emergency responders. These are the kinds of folks we need working at any time, but particularly in a pandemic. So it's, it's just absolutely critical, critical that Congress doesn't take the right. wrong message from the June jobs number and says, okay, uh, mission accomplished, we're okay here. We're far from it. They need to provide a lot more help, and very soon. But what about the specific child care issue? How does, how does Congress solve well, that? Well, I mean, you're right. They, they, they have to provide support through, uh, to, to support for child care on the other side of the, uh, during the pandemic and once schools uh, during the summer and when, when school, if schools don't reopen. So there has to be additional support there. You know, there's different ways of providing that support, direct aid to people who are unemployed or, you know, through, the, uh, through unemployment insurance or through the tax code. There's a child tax credit that could be used to make it refundable to a different household so that they can get cash back if, you know, if they have child care needs. But, uh, you know, all those things need to be part of any additional support that Congress uh, comes forward with. And hopefully, again, they come forward with that uh, quickly here. And we'll be covering it. Mark Zandi, thank you. We'll be back in a moment. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. 
Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Summer vacation looks a lot different this season. Short-distance road trips, visits to national parks, or for some, no trips at all. For a look at how Americans are thinking about travel, we know you're at least thinking about it, TripAdvisor CEO Stephen Coffer joins us from his home in Newton, Massachusetts this morning. Good morning to you. Good morning to you. So travel was supposed to be inching back up this summer. Uh, Now we have these spikes in the South and in the West. What is that doing to the consumers that you are watching? Yeah, so if you look at the traffic on our site, and we have hundreds of millions of visitors on TripAdvisor each and every month, you look at the top searches, and I think five or six of the top ten a couple of weeks ago were all wonderful southern beaches, Texas, Arizona, Florida, great places to go, but that switched. Everyone's moving essentially up north away from all these hotspots, which is totally understandable given the safety concerns that nine out of 10 travelers tell us are most important. We hear the president continue to float this idea of giving a potential tax credit to Americans if they take a vacation. Um, We don't know that Congress will take that up, but I'm wondering in the travel industry if you think or if you're betting on needing that. I think everyone in the travel industry is really, really concerned about this slip backwards that we've now seen in the U.S. And what's best for the travel industry, at least my opinion, is really getting the pandemic under control. And that isn't about a tax credit for someone to take a vacation. It's really about leadership from our federal government, from the state governments, from local governments, all telling people to do the basic things that everybody needs to do to keep us all safe. That's what will get travel going again in this country. And safety is the number one priority that you are seeing in the consumers who are looking to travel and to book something right now. I mean, how do you offer that to someone on the other end of a computer screen? Yeah, so we, we asked. We asked uh, hundreds of or thousands of people, and they said, nine out of ten said, Safety is the most important thing that that they are looking for when planning this next trip. So we went out as TripAdvisor, like the premier travel guidance company, and said, how can we help our travelers really understand the details about what makes a hotel or a restaurant or a thing to do safe for them? So we went out to all of the businesses, uh, eight plus million businesses on our site and said, "Come, come tell us. Come tell all the audience that is on our site everything that you as an individual business are doing to help keep your guests safe. Uh, And as of this morning, close to 50,000 different businesses had uploaded some information already. And this was just a program that was launched last week. So we expect many, many more. We know American, uh, different American airlines are going to the government to get emergency help. We saw new terms negotiated just this week. And I wonder if you are seeing Americans have the confidence to go and buy a ticket on a plane a few months out. Are they confident that airline isn't going to go bankrupt? I don't think they're worried about airlines going bankrupt, but they remain concerned about their health. And to the degree that the whole country can come together, as much of Europe has done, and really take a concerted effort to treat everyone safe, doing everything they can to make sure everyone feels safe when they but what travel. Is that, what does that mean? Does that mean masks are sort of the magic solution for a business to provide confidence? Does it mean face shields? Does it mean something specific? Like, how do you actually trust the safety measures? I, I'm personally less worried about getting on an airplane if I have a mask and I know every other passenger is wearing their mask. That would make me feel personally safe to go to a place if that place is not now a hotspot of coronavirus. So again, with government recommendations, with our president, with all of the national leaders saying this is what every American of every political persuasion should be doing, I think that would go a tremendous way to really helping take start the start the downward trend in, in cases. If you look at what Massachusetts is doing, we have a Republican governor, Charlie Baker, led by science, mm-hmm. who's looking at opening up the state after we clearly took care of the coronavirus. Yeah. Down to hundreds now, 
uh, and he's opening up very slowly. Okay. Well, we will see. Thank you very much, uh, Stephen Coffer from TripAdvisor. That's it for us today. Thank you all for watching. And many of you were not able to attend fireworks last night, or there were no fireworks displays to actually attend. So we want to leave all of you with some of the country's best displays. Until next week, for Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Houston Mayor Sylvester Turner, Miami-Dade County Mayor Carlos Jimenez, former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former National Security Advisor John Bolton, Moody's Analytics Chief Economist Mark Zandi, and TripAdvisor CEO Stephen Coffin. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter and Instagram. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 6 p.m. Eastern every Sunday. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be because Survivor 46 is here and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Divya Daris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast. And to ask Jeff some questions, because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast.